Wow. Yeah, another balmy Sunday in Canada, isn't it? Well, let, let me take you, if I can, to the, the warm, the arid, the temperate climate of ancient Philippi. We've been in the book of Acts, and we're going to stay in the book of Acts in chapter 16. So I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts 16 at verse 20. Verse 20, they brought them, them in this case, Paul and Silas, before the magistrates. And they said, these men are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and, and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, at once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke to the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And that, that, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. You can leave. Go now in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens, and they threw us in prison, and now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them. They escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. I feel warmer already. <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray, and then let's begin. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for these glimpses into the life of your church. Your church, in a day when everything was fresh and new, in a day when, when much was threatening and much was alarming, but 
but the power of your spirit ruled over all. And we pray that that day would speak powerfully to our day. The same spirit would be at work in our lives and in our church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You remember if you were here last week that Acts chapter 16 has these three remarkable stories. Intersections between the gospel and three very different lives. We looked last week at two of those lives, two of the women. The first, Lydia, a successful, a very affluent businesswoman. And then we looked at the plight of this, uh, this mentally tortured, spiritually oppressed young slave girl, 13, 14 years old, sold into bondage and, and just tortured by demons that are more terrible than you and I could possibly imagine. When she, when she met Paul, and Paul confronted her and, and spoke in power the name of Jesus, and, and she was released from illness and oppression, that set in motion a chain of events that, that really bring us to this story. Again, that young girl was a slave, and that meant she was the property of owners, and she represented for her owners a certain asset. Among the things that she could do in her disturbed and bizarre state was tell fortunes, and now that had been removed from her, and so the value of their asset was greatly diminished, and they were furious. And so verse 19, just before the text we started to read, says that when the owners realized that their hope of making money from her was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. And what happens next? They get the crowd. This is not any judicial system. They get the crowd to attack them. It says they were flogged. They were beaten with rods. They would have been bloody, probably broken bones, broken, broken ribs. The magistrates looked on. They let the crowd do it. No trial. It says in verse 23, after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And that's where we meet the third person in this remarkable triad of personalities at Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer. Let's just see what we, what we learn about this man, as we did last week. Uh, let's see how he finds Christ, and, and let's see if there are lessons that we can draw from it. First of all, what do we know about him? We know that as a jailer, he's probably ex-military. Makes sense in that world. Lots of retiring Roman soldiers who are looking for a, a civil service job. And what better person to fill the responsibilities of a jailer than someone who had weapons training and knew about defense and about securing prisoners. So we have kind of a blue-collar guy. Soldier, jailer, civil ser servant, ex-military. Let's stack him up against the others. We have Lydia. Again, affluent businesswoman, educated, uh, morally upstanding, uh, uh, a member of good society. We have this tortured, bizarre slave girl, possessed and ill. And then we have this rogue, you know, tough, retired, uh, ex-military civil servant. If we were to put these into, into modern terms, as we did last week, you have... Lydia, the boutique owner from Yorkville, you have this young girl, drug addicted, sold into prostitution, living in Regent Park in Toronto. And then you have this 
blue-collar worker living in, let's say, Etobicoke. Is that okay? Who lives in Etobicoke? It's a good city, right? No one. Okay. <laughs> so there's our, there's our triad of people. Here's one of the things that we know about this man. Because of his military background, it's, he has this tendency to, to be comfortable with brutality. It was sometimes required of soldiers. He's told in verse 23, what's the explicit instruction? Guard these prisoners. Do it carefully. And you notice that what he does next is not specifically called for. When he receives the orders, verse 24, he puts them in the innermost cell and he fastens their feet in the stocks. What is it he does exactly? He doesn't wash their wounds. He doesn't bandage them, even though they were bloody and probably broken bones. He puts them in the innermost cell, furthest from the light, deepest into the dungeon, and then he fastens their feet in the stocks. Now, we hear stocks. I don't know about you, but, but I imagine, you know, family trips to Disney World, and we go into Frontierland, and, and you put your head and your, and your arms through, and you take that picture, right? That's what we imagine stocks. Stocks were in the ancient world a barbaric method of torture. They splayed human limbs out at angles that were excruciating in their pain. And it led to hours and hours of, of these terrible muscle cramps. All this on top of the ravenous beating they just suffered. Now again, the, the guard hasn't explicitly been asked to do this. And it's not that, uh, it's not that the, the intention is to be unnecessarily cruel by the government. And yet... You get the sense that, that because others are watching him, he's going the extra mile, maybe trying to ingratiate himself to the magistrates. And so he piles on. He piles on the pain. He, he piles on the brutality. The only other thing that we notice about him right off the bat is this. He's a person that doesn't seem immediately open to talking about the gospel. You remember when, when Paul and his companions first meet Lydia, they strike up a conversation right away, a little little circle, and it's in that circle of, of spiritual conversation and accountability that she finds Christ. That in the conversation that, that develops between Paul and this tortured young slave girl, that he speaks in power to to her and to those who had possessed her, but but he speaks. This guy's a different thing. The gospel's not going to be communicated here, at least not first, in words. The gospel's going to be demonstrated in life by what Paul and Silas do, and then in power by what God does. And the jailer sees two amazing things in Paul. He sees peace and joy in the face of suffering. That's the first thing. And then he sees forgiveness and kindness in the face of cruelty. Have a look in verse 25. Chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. They're singing hymns. And the other prisoners are listening in. They're, they're fascinated. They're riveted by this. And they're amazed. What is it they hear? They, they hear the sound of music and praises to God. And, and here's why that's amazing. The ancient Near East, in fact, still today in the Middle East, um, a very expressive culture. 
Uh, emotions aren't meant to be held inside or are held in check. People express their feelings, unlike a lot of a lot of modern Westerners. If you go to a funeral then or even now, people don't sit quietly in neat little rows in the funeral parlor. They cry out. They wail. They 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 make noise that sounds like it's coming from deep within their engraved soul and they express it. When they're in despair, you know it. And when they're in agony, you shout it. Now here's two men who've been beaten. They've been treated with unnecessary, relentless cruelty. And they must have been still in a great deal of pain, and yet they're singing. And they're expressing praises to God. They're not wailing. They're not cursing. They're singing, and people were amazed. You kind of think that the jailer probably noticed it as well. And so, first of all, he, he sees this, this unexplainable peace and calm. In the face of suffering. But even more amazing, he sees cruelty. He knows they've been the victim of cruelty. And and he sees kindness. And he sees mercy. And here's how it happens. The man had been cruel to them. And here's what happens next. Verse 26. There was a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. And all the prison doors flew open. And people's chains came off. The jailer woke up. We don't know exactly where he was, somewhere in the jail. But he woke up, and from his vantage point, he sees all the prison doors fly open. And at, at that sight, uh, he draws his own sword, and he's ready to do what? To kill himself. Why? He's the warden. He's, he's the chief jailer. If you lost your prisoners and they were under your charge, the penalty was death. Now, here's a man in a position of responsibility and honor, and he lives in a culture that's all about honor and shame. And so in that kind of culture, the only way to hold on to your honor is not to wait for execution. He was going to kill himself on the spot. And then he hears a voice. It's Paul calling out from somewhere deep in the prison. Remember, he had the innermost cell. Not only did Paul and Silas not leave, but they'd kept all the other prisoners in there with them, basically upholding the law. The jailer calls for the lights. He rushes in. And when he sees this, Acts 16 says he falls on his knees right before Paul and Silas. He knows he's been cruel to them. He tortured them. And they had the opportunity right in front of them to to get payback big time. All they had to do was walk out. They'd been treated cruelly. It was unjust, without trial. It was illegitimate. They could have left. They could have left, but but they didn't. They saved his job. They saved his honor. They saved his life. They're not going to repay cruelty with spite. Instead, they, they treat mercilessness with mercy. They treat unkindness with kindness. They... They overcome evil with good. They forgave him. And that drove him to his knees. And scripture says he was trembling. By the way, this is, this is still an amazing thing when the world sees it. And, and it still drives people into, into this absolute state of disbelief. Some of you remember... Uh, this is going back about 11, 12 years now, 2006, a young man breaks into a little one-room schoolhouse in Amish, Amish country in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He takes the kids hostage. He shoots and kills five of them, all young girls. 
between the ages of 7 and 13, and then he turns the gun on himself. By that evening, same day, members of that close-knit Amish community had gone to the house of his parents, the murderer. And there they reached out to him and they said, we've lost children. You've lost a child. You're going to be suffering. We're going to be suffering. We're going to be there for you. And we're going to support you. We're going to do everything we can, and we're going to do it together in the months and years to come. And they embraced. Young man who had, who had murdered those five girls, he had a wife himself. He had three children. Three days later at the funeral for him, the funeral hall was filled not with curious onlookers and guests and media, but with members of that Amish community who came to support that wife and those children. Four years later, a book was published about the event. It was called Amish Grace. It was written actually by sociologists, secular writers. And they said the, the Amish believe that Jesus died on the cross and died forgiving his murderers. And as a result, for them to be a Christian is to have that at the very center of your life. They went on to say that no other religion in the world has a man dying for his enemies as the central principle of their faith. That, they write, is the reason that they were able to forgive. The second reason, though, and I thought this was just brilliant, is that they said for, for the Amish that forgiveness is an act of self-renunciation. You're renouncing your right to payback to revenge. You're saying, for the sake of God and other people and my own health, I'm not going to get revenge because it just consumes me inside. My soul gets twisted up by it. Forgiveness, they wrote, is an act of self-renunciation. We live in a culture of self-assertion. Christianity seems to be about self-renunciation. Here's what they said, word for word. I give up my freedom for God and for others. I give up my interests for God and for others. I deny myself for other people. If you harm people in a culture of self-assertion, their response will be revenge. But in the counterculture of self-renunciation, which is what the Amish were, the response is forgiveness. Somehow instinctively the jailer knew that. It drove him to his knees and it left him trembling. And he knows that in these two men, still, still shackled probably, that there is something that he doesn't have. There's a power that he doesn't have. Their ability to forgive shows that there's something at the core of, of their lives that he doesn't have. He saw the power of God in an earthquake, yes, but he saw the power of God in their lives. And he comes running in and he's, he's pleading before them, what must I do to be saved? See the power of your God. What must I do to be saved by him? By the way, there comes a point in everybody's life, everybody with, with any kind of self-knowledge where, where they ask that question. It might come in lots of different forms, but... 
What must I do to be saved? What must I do to reclaim my life? What must I do to turn things around? What must I do to escape bondage and captivity in these areas of my life? It's the first step of AA. You're powerless over your problems. Even though people grow up being told you can handle all of it. Within yourself, you have whatever it takes. It's a lie. The Bible knows it's a lie. Instinctively, people know it's a lie. At some point, we realize that we're flawed on the inside and that there's lots of forces on the outside that conspire against us. And the only way we make it is with help. What must I do to be saved? Now notice this burly jailer, this blue-collar ex-military type. And notice the way he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? He's a man of action, right? If he's going to get God's salvation, there's something that he's got to do. And I'm sure he expects Paul to come with his comprehensive list of the 50 things that he has to do in order to be saved. But that's not the answer. All he says is this. Just believe. What must I do to be saved? Just believe what he's done for you. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're strong or weak. It doesn't matter whether you're good or bad. Salvation is free. And boy, that, that levels everyone. Remember in probably the most famous recorded conversation of, of Jesus in the Bible, that late night conversation with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. That's the same subject. What must I do to be saved? And... And that famous verse that you all memorized, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, only begotten Son, whosoever believes, not does, whosoever believes, everlasting life. Also in that passage, Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses raised up the serpent on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. Now, that's, that's kind of a strange incident that Jesus is referring to. From deep in the pages of the Old Testament, from way back in the book of Numbers, what could he possibly be doing taking that episode out of Israel's ancient past and bringing it into the present? talks about a time when, when Israel was rebelling against God and and then they're, they're afflicted with a terrible plague, and they're dying, and they cry out in repentance. And, and how does God respond? He says to Moses, I want you to take a bronzed serpent, place it on the end of a pole, and hold it up. By the way, those of you who are in the medical field, you still have that emblem. It's on your degree, or it's on your whites, or it's on your tunic. But the serpent, the, the symbol of healing is, is there. But here's the point. He's... Moses is told, put it up, and anyone who looks at it will be healed. You see why God sets it up that way. Some people are stronger. Some people are weaker. Some could have walked over and maybe touched it. Others couldn't. Others are too weak to even get up. This is the great leveler. What do you have to do in order to be saved? Just look. That's what Jesus says. Salvation is like that. All you have to do is look, tough guy. Jailer, rippling muscles, sword ready to do something. Just believe. You could be a child. You could be a nine-year-old. It doesn't matter. You could be a person who walks with a cane. It doesn't matter. What must I do? 
Just believe. What's the result? If, if you have your order of service, have a look there in the, the back page. And you'll see there, and they're just a bunch of quick bullet points. It's, it's always kind of good to ask of Scripture what, what happened and what does it mean? What are the marks of, of this changed life? What's the result of the gospel when it comes into close proximity in the life of this Philippian jailer, how do you know that he believes? Well, there's these three little marks, really marks that uh, that have a way of of featuring themselves in the lives of lots of people. Most people, probably they should be in the lives of all people when they're saved. Verses 33 and 34, let's read them. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, Paul and Silas, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he was filled with joy. So notice these three things. First of all, the gospel makes you compassionate. Even a tough guy like the Philippian jailer is now washing wounds, now caring for needs. The gospel makes you compassionate. Maybe you were compassionate already. But if you weren't, If you weren't that way to start with, the gospel brings that out in you. Secondly, the gospel makes you committed to both ministry and community. If there is a doing something, it's not doing anything to appease God or earn his favor. It's doing something in response and doing it out of compassion for other people. He doesn't keep this to himself, that jailer. His whole family gets involved. By the end of the day, they're all baptized together as a way of identifying publicly with faith and with the, with the Christian community. It's, it's kind of this interesting thing with Christianity because it's personal, yes. It's a personal thing, but it's not private. You don't keep it to yourself. You, you tell people that you care about it, that this is something real and life-changing. And it, it makes you identify with other people who've had that real life-changing encounter. It, it brings you into community. Thirdly, real gospel faith gives you joy. And that brings me kind of right to the end with these three joyful lessons from Acts chapter 16. If we think back to last week and this week, remember those three people. Lydia, the cosmopolitan businesswoman. Slave girl, a wreck, a a marginal person, and the Philippian jailer. These three people whose lives were changed forever by the gospel. Remember how different these people were? Racially, one is Asian, one is Greek, one is Roman. Lydia was the Asian, slave girl the Greek, jailer the Roman. Economically, one's upper class, Lydia. One is lower class, the slave girl. One's, I guess, kind of middle class, if that existed back then, the jailer. Socially, one's an insider, Lydia. One's an outcast, the slave girl. One's kind of somewhere in the middle, the jailer. One is spiritually open. One is demonically hostile. One is completely indifferent. Are you impressed with cultural anthropology as I remember it? All these differences? One's rational, one's intuitive, one's relational, one is gentle, one is brutal, one is mental. They were as different as different could be, racially, socially, gender, everything. What does it mean? Here's the first lesson. It's important. The gospel is for everyone, or to put it a different way, everyone needs the gospel. There is no Christian type. 
Christianity is not just for the weak. It's not just for the conservative. It's not just for liberal types or moral types or broken types. It encounters and it changes everyone. We live in a culture that says truth is, is all relative. If it works for you, then it's true for you. But what if there is truth out there that's universally true? That means if it works, it works for everyone. If it's true, it's true for everyone. That's the first thing. There is no Christian type. The gospel changes everyone. Here's the second thing. The gospel is, I think, the single most unifying power on the face of the earth. There is nothing else that brings together diverse human beings more than the gospel. The last verse, I love this verse that we read today. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went where? They went to a house. Whose house? Lydia's house. And there they met with brothers and sisters and encouraged them. This is the first church in Philippi. The first church in Asia Minor. A whole new world opening up to them. Who's there at that first church? All the converts. Lydia's there. The slave girl is there. The Philippian jailer is there. Three people who would have nothing to do with each other were it not for Christ. Some of you may know that that old Jewish prayer. It's been prayed for centuries by Jewish males. I'm sure it's not prayed anymore today, but they would wake up in the morning. They would say, oh, Lord, I thank you that you do not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. You laugh, but they prayed it with sincerity. Condescending, right? It's a way of saying, I have the better gender, I have the better class, and I have the better race. That was the traditional prayer. And God has the audacity to build his church on those three despised classes of people who are the first members of the church, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. How clear could he be that in the Bible, pedigree means nothing? Social class means nothing. In other words, God is saying, you're mine. It doesn't matter whether you're weak or strong or what your background is. It just doesn't matter. Grace means pedigree has no bearing anymore. These people aren't just individually saved. They're called together. They, they become a family, brothers and, and sisters. These despised groups who hated each other, different classes, personality types, the gentle, the brutal. Now they're brothers and sisters, they're family. Now, I'm sure we talked about this before at some point last year, and so I'll just I'll mention it quickly. But, but you know that there is no religion as culturally diverse as Christianity. Nothing even comes close, not even marginally so. Most major world religions are confined to a small geographic area around where they were conceived. The majority of their people will live on the same continent. And roughly speaking, if you look at the world map, 20% of all Christians are in Africa. 20% are in Latin America. 20% are in Asia. A little more than 20% are in Europe. And a little less than 20% are in North America. What does that leave? Antarctica. Maybe 
God will deal with the penguins later on. There is no religion that is distributed like that. Do you know why? Because the gospel is the strongest power on the face of the earth to bring people together who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. It's for everyone. And it is the strongest unifying power that we know. And here's the last thing. Lastly, the gospel is true freedom. I want you to notice something at the end. It's, it's, it's kind of confusing, but it's there for a reason. Um, we know from other, other sections of the Bible, not just here, that Paul was a Roman citizen, so was Silas. To be a Roman citizen was something that you could be granted by earth or, or by birth, or, or, or you could purchase it. And it wasn't an absolutely common thing. Roman citizens were unusual. They had all kinds of rights. They had a right to appeal. They had a right to trial. And here's the question. Why didn't Paul and Silas tell the authorities about their citizenship until the very end of the story? Couldn't they have stopped the beating? They certainly could have stopped the jailing. Why in the world does it get brought up only here at the end, only after Paul and Silas are released? Most people who have read and prayed over this passage now for a long time are in agreement that this is just brilliant, sacrificial leadership by Paul. Paul knew that the Christians in other parts of the world and future generations of the church here in Philippi, they would be in the same vulnerable position that he and Silas were. They were subject to, would be subject to the very things that were happening to Paul and Silas. Prejudice and anger and, and mobs and prison. He knew they'd face all of that. And so he doesn't use his get out of jail free card. Instead, he goes through it. He doesn't exempt himself from what he knows others are going to have to go through. That's, that's courageous leadership. But then why bring it up at the very end? I'll tell you why. He's trying to rattle the authorities. They're scared now. If he appealed, if this became public to higher powers, they could lose their job. Why? Because they'd mistreated a Roman citizen. Why is he scaring them like this? He's trying to create space for the church. He wants those in authority to think twice before they come at the church again. It's brilliant. Uh, he goes to prison for the sake of, of his own people. More interestingly, he went to prison for the sake of the jailer. He didn't know that at the time. Now, here's what's so ironic and what's so really brilliant about this story. What's real freedom? What does it mean to be free? Paul was in chains. Limbs were splayed apart in the stalks and he was singing. Even though he was in chains physically, something within him was set free. The main thing in your life is something that can never be deprived from you, never be taken from you. If, if salvation and the love of God is the foundation of your life and your meaning and your self-worth, then suffering can never devastate you. you. Can't take those things. Paul's in chains. The jailer is the one who has the key and the sword and the power, but Paul's actually the one who's free. The jailer, even though he's physically free, discovers that, that his life is enslaved to things that 
that he couldn't even acknowledge at the time. And there's a sense in which Paul is saying, yeah, we stayed here. With the earthquake and everything else, we're still here. Do you know why? Because we're free right here. We're free right now. We have freedom. We don't have to leave in order to find it. We're free from our past. There's no guilt. We're free from the future. There's no threat. We're free in the present because there's no suffering in the world that can take away what we have right now. And so we're going to sing right here in the dark. See the irony there. There they are in chains. And yet in chains, they're showing the world what real freedom is. And the jailer was freed ultimately because Paul went to prison. Paul loses his freedom. The jailer finds his. In that sense, isn't Paul kind of walking in the same footsteps as Jesus? Our Savior who was confined so we'd be liberated. He wasn't just put in prison, but was executed so we could be free. Gospel changes anyone. Jesus was beautiful enough for Lydia, powerful enough for a slave girl, practical enough for the jailer. And he has what you and I need to. Who knows? Who knows once we experience the full liberating power of Jesus, what we will be? Let's pray that we find out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us these examples of how the gospel changes lives. Lord, we want that same freedom. We want to know that unifying power that brings us together over all the walls that can divide us. We want to be able to lift up your name to other people. We, we want them to see your glory, be attracted to the way that attracted to you the way the jailer was. God, use our lives in that way even in the way that we handle suffering and mistreatment. God, in prayer, we reach out and we lift up to you those who know suffering in these days, physical illness, grief and anguish, concerns about, about finances and relationships. God, we lay these burdens at your feet. We pray for the blessing and the freedom of release knowing that it is in your power to change any of those circumstances, and even, even when you don't, that the power of the gospel can change us. God, let the lessons of this text, let them be realized in our lives. We don't want it to be just the greatest freedom for us, but we want it to be a source of glory for you. And we pray all this together in Jesus' name.